Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. You know what time it is. It's Wednesday. You know what that means. We're in the studio. Who's this podcast for? My name is Nate. So happy to be back with you all. If you're listening to this, it's the middle of the week, middle of the work week. Um, almost to the weekend, but again, the, I saw something earlier that I thought it was interesting. Like, don't look forward to the weekend. Don't look forward to, or like, um, you spend all your time looking forward to the weekend. You spend all your time looking forward to a different, um, you know, season. Like, when it was summer, you were waiting for winter. When it was winter, you were waiting for summer. When it was Monday, you were waiting for Friday. You know, stuff like that. And then, and in the end, you end up just waiting your entire life. So I thought that was pretty resonant, but we are almost at a weekend. But like I say, you got your regular job. Work on your, your hobby or your passion. And if they happen to coexist, that's great too. Now, let's jump right on in. I hope you all are doing well. Told you we had some Thomas Flight today. We introduced him last week. Today I got maybe three, probably at the most, I know for certain two videos, but maybe three on Thomas Flight on YouTube. The first one is the director who mastered the art of filming faces. The description is Ingmar Bergman is the filmmaker who I think has most extensively explored the unique potential of faces to be arranged to compose in interesting ways on screen. So I really wanted to look this one up. I liked this video when it came out back in 2021. Now, like, oh, this is very interesting. I didn't really know much about Ingmar Bergman back then, but this kind of opened me up to him. So let's see. I hope you pull it up yourself. Again, it's called The Director Who Mastered the Art of Filming Faces by Thomas Flight. We're going to jump right in because these are pretty long videos. All right, here we go. Dear director, here's two faces. Think about how you could compose them on screen for a dramatic conversation between a couple. You might have them sit across from each other and use over-the-shoulder shots. You could have them walk beside each other. You could have them stand, arguing, or you could play it in profile. There are a lot of great ways you could frame the couple, but would you come up with this? But it got the face is perhaps one of the most important and powerful dramatic tools cinema has at its disposal. In the hands of a talented performer, the drama of a face can be one of the most captivating parts of a film. And yet when it comes to how faces are presented in film, the way they're composed and arranged on screen, it can be easy to fall into a rut, relying on convention to compose them in tried and true ways that we've all seen thousands of times. Maybe the Let me say this. I have often waxed poetic, if um, not on this pod, at least in my personal life, about um, how I'm pretty much bored with how a lot of directors frame and compose their shots these days. Um, and part of this video, why I want to make or watch this this uh, th- this particular video, was because it's about faces, but also composing and. Uh, framing your compositions which usually is people talking or whatever or what have you but i've just been so bored with the the 21st century model of shot reverse shot reverse and don't get me wrong that's been around in cinema since the very beginning but they knew to utilize it with other things and that it wasn't just it wasn't a standard and it wasn't supposed to be always and to change it up to bring some variety and some flair to your movie to make it more dynamic especially in long dialogue scenes where now did you do shot reverse shot? That's why I want to talk about this video because Ingmar Bergman was very much different in how he composed his uh his actors to stand and and deliver lines. 
making for a dynamic shot that keeps your attention even when it's a lot of just dialogue you might and your thoughts might run away. Well, I personally, when I see a shot or, or um, over-the-shoulder shot and they just go back and forth between each character, I get so bored and tedious. And I'm like, this is the easiest, most conventional, boring way to do this. And why does nobody have any imagination anymore? But I just want to say that. Okay, we're going to tap back in. Greatest exception to this, the director I would consider the master of composing faces in unique and effective ways is Swedish director Ingmar Bergman. Thank you to Mubi for sponsoring this video. Berman's filmography is piercingly intimate. His stories often have little or no action, take place in a few simple locations, and involve just a handful of characters. A few people having a conversation is maybe the most well-tread territory in film, yet his films are often visually striking and contain inventive imagery that I've never seen anywhere else. Like many directors, he spins faces so we see them straight on in direct profile or facing away from the lens. While these types of compositions aren't unusual in other films, what sets Bergman apart is that he's not afraid of playing even his most important dramatic moments on a composition like this. And he isn't afraid to linger here for an extended period of time. But more unusually, he also... Real quick, that's another thing I really dislike in modern movies. The unwillingness to linger on certain shots for a while were movies. And I saw this chart some years ago. It showed the time between frames of what they used to be in the 70s, 60s, 50s, going back. How long they would hold on one frame before they cut to a second, as opposed to now. And, it's, and back then it was like maybe an average length of like four seconds, maybe five. Now it's like one to one and a half, meaning that they're cutting a lot quicker. It's the MTV music video style of editing where it's just to hold your attention because of how choppy it is instead of just letting things linger and lie and hold and ferment before you make a cut. And it to me, it completely devalues the art of editing and the art of the cut because I think the cut is so jarring that you could tell such a fantastic story between two different scenes or two different shots. But you don't really get that that feeling unless you start holding more. I just don't think a lot of directors today have patience and they're scared that, that the audience is going to lose patience in. The audience can't watch a movie without that, that super quick YouTube style of shooting that, you know, so be it. Like, I, I just wouldn't care, but, you know, it, it just makes the movies worse, in my opinion. And they, and they so much better understood the art of pacing back in the day, I, I, in my opinion. Rotate spaces turning them sideways and even completely upside down beyond changing the position of a face. You can modify its shape further by obscuring part of it with an object in the foreground. Light also plays an important role in shaping the face. How a face is lit dramatically changes its texture. Light can make a face foreboding or flat. With it, you can even reduce a face to a sliver. The lighting doesn't have to be static either. And Persona Bergman illustrates a shift in internal emotion by subtly changing the light on a face. In Summer with Monica, he does something similar, but this time he changes the light that surrounds the face instead of the light on the face. I think the two places he does this in this film are its most striking moments. 
Using lines cast by shadows, you can divide a face into pieces, further creating unique compositions and shapes. In Persona and the Seventh Seal, costume design is used to emphasize the faces of certain characters. In these examples, it almost disembodies the face, in one case emphasizing the character's true nature as a spirit, and in the other calling into question whether the character is truly real or just a psychological projection. In Cries and Whispers, two sisters' faces are shrouded in black, contrasting a third sister's face surrounded by white. The drama of the face can be very subtle. Appreciate just for a moment the emotional detail in the small expressions on Liv Ullman's face in this scene, and our ability to extrapolate internal conflict just from what we see on her face. And you can tell Bergman really trusted the power of a face on its own. In this scene from Cries and Whispers, he creates horrifying tension simply by keeping the scene in close-up. It creates a feeling that something terrible is being kept just out of view. Got ads. I'll be back in two seconds. Those are a lot of variables that give you a lot of options for uniquely portraying a single face, but where the potential of faces becomes truly infinite is in the arrangement of multiple faces in a frame. The interplay between two faces in a frame can create an incredible variety of compositions. You can visually contrast desire and indifference, or concern and ecstatic bliss within a single composition. In The Seventh Seal, which features a fairly large cast for Bergman, he stacks faces on top of each other, arranging them in tableau. Here he uses faces in symbolically significant ways. In this scene, the face of a mask represents death's presence looming over the party. He does a similar thing in The Winter Light, a film about a priest struggling with doubt. Here, the face of Christ looms in the background, as if he's just another face in one of Bergman's compositions. And in this scene from The Seventh Seal, the two characters in the foreground act as mouthpieces for the words of the characters behind them. Those characters' faces sit on the shoulders of the speaking characters, like angels and devils. Light again plays a role with multiple faces. Now Bergman can contrast how two faces are lit. One can be dark and one can be light. One can be evenly lit and another split by shadow. Bergman also understands intuitively the power of obscuring a face. As humans, we're drawn to see faces. Our brains are highly attuned to recognize faces and the emotions displayed there. So we're acutely aware of the presence of a face that we can't fully see, feeling almost cheated of the emotional information that's just out of sight. And Bergman plays with this constantly, cutting faces off, letting us see only a small piece, or obscuring them altogether. Giving us only a small piece of a face makes us pay closer attention to try to make out what information we can, and it can also represent a character's attempt or desire to hide what they truly feel. In Bergman's exploration of the face, it's important to note his collaboration with cinematographer Sven Nyquist. Sven's stunning, minimalist black-and-white cinematography would help emphasize the landscape of the face. Bergman utilized faces in interesting ways before working with Sven, but together they would push the boundaries of what was possible even further. The collaboration started with The Virgin Spring, developed over several films, and perhaps reached its peak with Persona.
is the master of using the face in unique ways in cinema. Persona is perhaps the film that pushes his use of the face to its limit. It's hard to think of a film more thematically oriented around the landscape of the face than Persona. The idea of the face itself and the portrayal of faces on screen is intimately linked to the themes of the film. Not only is Bergman exploring the edges of how a face can be abstracted on screen in composition without losing the emotional information that resides there, he's utilizing the face and the interplay between two faces to create powerful symbolism at the core of the film. So why isn't this kind of composition and experimentation with faces more common in film? Well, to achieve what Bergman's achieving, it's not just about composition. The emphasis on face runs much deeper into production. How scenes are staged and how actors work is affected. What's often missing from Bergman's cinema is shot and reverse shot. Because we often see close-ups and reactions in the same frame, there's an added complexity not just for individual compositions, but in the progression from one composition to another within single shots. Actors have to move their heads and reposition themselves at precise moments. For some of these moments, Bergman is blocking scenes not just on the scale of where actors stand, but on the scale of the turn of a head. In this scene from Cries and Whispers, as two sisters try to reunite, as they push away from each other, they face away from us, concealing themselves from us and one another. But as they open up to each other, they turn their faces towards us, literally becoming more emotionally open to the audience as they open up to each other. Working like this is a lot to ask of your talent, especially when you're dealing with material that's as emotionally raw as Bergman was. And without shot and reverse shot, there aren't many options here to adjust things in the edit. And that might have been part of why the director tended to stick with certain actors once he found ones he liked working with. Most contemporary traumas are much more geared towards giving actors flexibility and freedom. The recent film, Malcolm and Marie, has a lot of elements that are evocative of a urban film. It's shot in black and white, it has one location, only two characters, and deals with interpersonal conflict. There are even some... Malcolm and Marie, we pause it here. Malcolm and Marie is so interesting. Better movie had a lot going for it, how beautiful it looked. Uh, and the performances from John David and Zendaya. Kind of Zendaya's beyond euphoria, her first real movie role of an adult. And, you know, uh, I thought I had a lot going for it, but the script kind of let it down a little bit. Just too much, um, too much overt text and not enough subtext. And quite frankly, not enough text in general. I don't think they explored enough, but, but that movie had a lot going for it. I remember watching it when it came out, I was like, man, this really could have been something special. Um, uh, so, so for him to bring it up here, I forgot that he brought it up in this uh, video. But this part of the video is called Why Don't More Directors Do This? I just think that they're lazy and they're trying to find the most economical way to tell the story. And it doesn't always end with the best result in terms of what I want, at least. Moments that seem to evoke Bergman's use of faces. But because the actors are moving more freely, the shapes and compositions they create with their faces are much more fleeting and fluid. In Bergman's films, it's the holding of these positions or the precision of the movements, as much as it is their presence, that gives them a lasting impact. Working this way, using the face as a landscape, isn't right for every film, story, style of performance, or cinematography. 
Packing two faces close together works well for certain kinds of scenes and subject matter, but would be terrible for others. My hope in highlighting how Barbara uses faces is not just to inspire you by showing you what's possible with a face, but also to showcase just how limitless any individual aspect of film can be, and how much potential lies just outside the boundaries of convention. In this video, I've been illustrating Bergman's approach to using faces. One I think is incredible. But one of the things I love about film is that just because one approach works well and produces interesting results on screen doesn't invalidate other, sometimes opposite approaches. A filmmaker who works much less formally, giving his actors a lot of freedom to improvise, but who still finds interesting compositions in the process, is Derek C. in France. His film Blue Valentine is... See, this is where I'm going to disagree. Um, this section is called, but it's not right for every film, and he's talking about you know, somebody who carefully stages and blocks their scenes is one way, but it doesn't mean like a, um, another way of doing it is like, you know, very much loose and almost um, documentary-esque or guerrilla style where the camera, you're just following them as they go along and giving the actor that much freedom. I don't think that's the best way to do it. I think that's a novice, uh, very ugly, poor way to do it. And uh, the great masters from before never did that, or at least most of them didn't. I think that's been a re another reason why these movies don't work for me as much as they used to, because quite frankly, I just, I, I don't like those sentiments. Um, I, I, I don't like that look. I don't like that, that style. Uh, and every time I see it, it, it annoys me more and more because it's so popular now. And framing and blocking like a Spielberg or, or a Bergman or guys like that, it just doesn't happen anywhere near as much as it used to. And now we get a ugly handheld and characters move wherever they want just following them like a documentary. I just don't like it. Is made using techniques dramatically different from how Bergman approached filmmaking, and yet he reaches a similar level of dramatic effect. He does. You can watch Blue Valentine right now on Mubi, my sponsor for this episode. I can recommend Blue Valentine or other films for you to watch on Mubi, but what I love most about Mubi is that it's a hand-curated streaming service. On many other platforms, the film... Alright, that's enough, Thomas. Well, hold on. Explore their library. Sign up for your extended free trial. Yeah, that's enough, Thomas. Uh, like the video, disagree with the end. watching the leaves fall right now it's such a beautiful sight i got mesmerizing it but um uh, back to it another thomas flight video let's see if i disagree with anything in this one this is a bit of a longer one so it might be the last one we do because the other one i have in mind is long as well but i want to do this one first it's about paul thomas anderson if you remember him he's a, the film director we did a whole episode on him where i ranked all his movies probably a year or so ago and this is called the evolution of a style how Paul Thomas Anderson changed from Thomas Flight. I got ads. Let me see if I can skip them. I can. Skip the ads if you don't want to watch them. It's there. 
Um, no description for this one. I don't think anyways. Right. So we're just going to jump into it. So again, this is from Thomas Flight, how Paul Thomas Anderson changed. Let's watch. A massive sign announces the location. A semi-truck passes by a frame subject, a dejected young man sitting in the gravel by the door. A shadowy figure steps in the frame. He hesitates for a moment as if assessing the scene in front of him. The camera tracks with the figure as he approaches the young man. This is the first shot Paul Thomas Anderson puts to screen in a feature film, and it's as competent and assured as anything will be throughout his career. The technical aspects of this shot stand out, but it's the first few lines of the film that really catch my attention. Hey. Chapter one, it says. So we're going to explore his earlier films like Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. Then he has a bit of a change with Punch Drunk Love, and then you get to his next phase, which is There Will Be Blood, um, The Master, Inherent Vice, then I think Phantom Thread, and before this movie came out, I mean, before this video came out, I don't think uh, Licorice Pizza was out yet. Did it come out last year or the year before? I think it did come out in 2021. So maybe it was already out or it was about to come out. But yeah, that's kind of his evolution. And I prefer his later movies. But we'll get to that soon. How does one attempt to summarize the career of a writer-director like Paul Thomas Anderson? His philosophy is as sprawling and varied as the cast and narrative in one of his early films. He starts with a sideways, half-gangster, half-gambling film that ends up being more about fatherhood than anything else. And he goes on to make period pieces that deal with the rise of the oil industry in California at the turn of the 20th century. The births of Scientology and London fashion in the 50s. The Nixon era of hippie culture in the 70s and the porn industry in the 70s and 80s. These films range from comedic neo-noir and twisted romantic comedy to darkly intense dramas and strange liminal films in between. Besides those, he made a bizarre sort of Lynchian Adam Sandler rom-com and a manic maximalist ensemble melodrama. You don't call him. You don't know. You get involved in all while lurking underneath the surface of all the characters in all these times and places is a persistent sort of loneliness, a difficulty finding connection, and a sense of corrupted ideals. I have a love in my life. It makes me stronger than anything you can imagine. PTA has these monolithic male characters that often make declarative statements about who they are. I do many, many things. I am a writer, a doctor, a nuclear physicist, a theoretical philosopher. But above all, I am a man. But these statements are often 
often a kind of misdirection, obscuring the character's true nature. I have numerous concerns spread across the state. I have many wells flowing at many thousand barrels per day. I like to think of myself as an oil man. Sure, Daniel Plainview is an oil man, but that's perhaps the most benign description of his character. It's how he represents himself to others, but we see him as a liar. Statements he makes are often juxtaposed with footage that directly contradict his claims. I encourage my men to bring their families as well. That speaks for ever so much more reward in life. The Daniel Plainview we see on screen is a man gripped by anger, envy, and greed. A false prophet who promises prosperity to a community, but who seeks only his personal gain. The guy that's offering to give me a cigarette, buy a cup of coffee. Sydney, the character the film Hard Eight was originally titled after until the studio got involved and took control away from freshman director Paul Thomas Anderson, ends up being much more than a guy offering a cigarette and a cup of coffee. Sydney offers John a sort of paternalistic guidance. Did you guys have money? Almost. The audience has a sense he's being taken under Sydney's wing and recruited for something, but we don't know what. And we'll spend the rest of the film slowly discovering the true nature of the dynamic of this relationship. PTA centers most of his films around such a relationship. In Boogie Nights, Jack Corner spots a waiter in the opening scene. In Punch Drunk Love, Luna appears just as mysteriously as the piano in the street a few moments earlier. And it's always these moments of chance meeting that set PTA stories down their path. A PTA film has its own bizarre sort of structure. The traditional three acts are gone. The inciting incident is almost always two characters entering each other's orbit. Susha? I'm his commander, yes. And we simply follow that connection and its developments on whatever linear, orbital, spiraling, or divergent path it takes us. I love to get you on a slow boat to China. Got it. See if I can skip them. I can't. But yeah, uh, you can watch the course of his career and see a very, very, uh, a wide change. Um, and we're getting that here in this chapter two, if you're paused at 530 now, like I am. So the evolution of a style, he's going to get to it now, but yeah, he becomes much more reserved in his camera movements and his, uh, he becomes much more laid back, much more quiet of a filmmaker than his earlier stuff, which honestly I appreciate. Let's get back to it. Unlike some of the other contemporary American male love tours, it's difficult to view PTA's filmography as a clear stylistic progression, at least in visual terms. If you plotted a trajectory for where you thought Anderson's later films would end up based on his first three, I doubt many would have predicted Phantom Thread. Stylistically, in his first three, PTA is a natural extension of his new Hollywood influences, already developing and using long steadicam shots in Hard Eight. The showy opening of Boogie Nights is frequently compared to Scorsese's famous steadicam sequence from Goodfellas. 
In fact, the latter half of Boogie Nights, in a lot of ways, plays like an expansion of this drug and paranoia-fueled climactic sequence from Goodfellas, and the film ends on a note that undeniably echoes the ending of Raging Bull. Each of his first three films feels like a progression along a stylistic path that merges Robert Altman's ensemble cast and meandering narrative structure with intensely acted, almost frenetic camera work that feels largely informed by Scorsese's filmography. But he's not merely regurgitating these styles, he's heightening them, intensifying and amplifying. Very quickly, Anderson is establishing himself as a bold and intuitive director, committing to surprising choices that often pay off. It's Cosmo. What's your company, your white? Your white books. But after Magnolia, his filmography stylistically takes an interesting turn. So how do we get from these sprawling narratives, ensemble casts, and large amounts of dramatic intensity and frenetic camera movement to the quiet, focused, barely linear, gentle drama with the almost static camera of Phantom Thread. Examined in only visual and structural terms, the two extremes of his style we see in Magnolia and Phantom Thread might seem to have little connective tissue. So how does PTA get from this? Thank goodness he did get here because that was all just too much. Too short for no reason. In my opinion. Anderson's stylistic development can be seen primarily from Magnolia through There Will Be Blood. Up through Magnolia, we see a director who worked primarily with energy, intensity, mood, and the momentum of editing. The camera was important, but the emphasis was geared towards what the camera was doing over what the camera was seeing. But around Punch Drunk Love, we see a shift towards an emphasis on image itself. Composition and light begin to gain priority. This trend continues to develop, and there will be blood. Composition and light. What he said took authority. Let's go back. We see a shift towards an emphasis on image itself. Com image itself, not all that movement and all that showiness, but the image that being the, the strongest weapon that cinema has. Composition and light begin to gain priority. Composition and light begin to gain priority, as it should for every director. Too bad it took him like three or four movies to figure that out. That's why Punch Drunk Love is the start of his apex. And every movie after is better than all of his first three, in my opinion. This trend continues to develop, and there will be blood composition gains more importance. PTA seemed to gain a greater handle on the power available even in just how you frame a static shot. And while camera movement still plays a vital role, it becomes more subtle and hidden from our view. By the time we get to the master, the camera moves even less, and the composition and lighting of each individual frame takes center stage. Beautiful shot. The, the master is my favorite PTA film, and has beautiful compositions and shots. And the composition and lighting of each individual frame takes. The shot in the elevator is masterful, pun intended. Center stage. Long takes are still used, but the slowly unfolding compositions that we see here. Are a far cry from the showy, complicated movements of his earlier films. I think it's an incredibly interesting stylistic development for a director to make. His first three films established Anderson's bold command of the camera, 
before, his formal decisiveness remains. Some of his showiness begins to fall away into a more restrained clarity and simplicity later in his career. And when it comes to light and texture, I think the master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread are three of the most beautifully photographed films of the decade. This yes, I need to go back. Simplicity. He's finally getting to some points. And when it comes to light and texture, I think the master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread are three of the most beautifully photographed films of the decade. This shift towards simplicity, whether entirely conscious or just symptomatic of a change in the kinds of stories Anderson is telling later in his life, has allowed for what I think is truly the most interesting element of PTA's work to take center stage. I try as hard as I can to not do the writing, to let the character do the writing. So hopefully you're getting into a state of kind of auto-hypnosis where the characters are kind of doing, making choices and things are happening to them um, that can eventually formulate a story. This coffee shop scene where these two guys meet, it used to be a sort of notion of mine, I guess it still is, that if you don't know what you're writing, just put two people in a coffee shop and have them start talking and it will eventually figure itself out. And that's kind of what happened. This movie just sort of started writing itself. Just get two people talking. And if you don't know what they're saying, but you know one of the guys, he's going to read it, guide you, and the, the movie will come. Throw him in a situation with somebody who, who has a huge appetite for life and is asking him questions, questions that he probably is not asking himself. And you, you, you I suppose, I guess that's the basics of a story. Chapter three, the basics of a story. Got ads again. Let's see here. I can skip these. Phantom Thread looks so good. Just that film green. That's why film is better than digital. You know, I never relent on that point. That's why movies aren't as important as they used to be, in my opinion. My favorite moment in my favorite PTA film comes towards the end of Phantom Thread. Almost serves Reynolds and Alfred, non-fatally poisoned with mushrooms. She's poisoned him before, discovering that making him sick is the only way to get him to relinquish the vice grip of control with which he holds life. As he goes to eat, Reynolds suspects Alfred. He never says this, but it's clear just through Daniel Davis's performance. And at this moment, the full complexity of the dynamic of this relationship plays out between them without even a word being spoken. The context of Alma much earlier in the film saying, hangs over this moment. And Reynolds, in his utterly childish need for control, attempts to assert that control by showing Alma he's knowingly accepting a poison. You need to set a permanent. Earlier in the film, like any good PTA character, Reynolds makes a declarative statement about who he is. I'm incurable. One that perhaps more than any other that a PTA character makes is true at face value. I can imagine the definition of incurable being somebody 
for whom the only cure seems to be making them sick. This dynamic of, I need you, but you're my poison, is a thread running throughout Anderson's entire filmography, right back to heart eight. Sydney's adoptive, fatherly care for John leads John down a dark path. I said on the phone, you know, it's kind of screwed up. Yeah, so? Open the door, let's see what's going on. It is born out of Sydney's own twisted desire for redemption. Jack is another surrogate father, offering Eddie an escape, but also the thing that is ultimately his downfall. Freddie Quell is the ultimate patient for Lancaster Dodd, but also the symbol of the failure of Dodd's own practices. There's not too many places I could go with this dog. Shasta Faye is the excellent lady that Doc just can't let go of, but who entangles Doc in the nasty underbelly of L.A., almost getting him killed. And Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday, and perhaps the darkest incarnation of this dynamic in any of PTA's films, simultaneously rely on and sabotage each other, almost building each other up so they have a greater opponent to later tear down. Look at me! You're lower than a bastard. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? No. Do your past failures bother you? I always feel like I'm discovering a PTA film from the inside out. PTA at his best doesn't establish stories. He establishes characters. Everything that surrounds them becomes a sort of backdrop to the complicated drama that plays out between them. There Will Be Blood isn't really a story about oil. It's a story about father and son and two rivals. The Master isn't really about Scientology, Part 8 about gambling, nor Phantom Thread about dressmaking. These films are about the characters at their core and the often confounding dynamics between those characters. For a while, Magnolia was my favorite PTA film. The first few times I watched it, I was enthralled. I didn't really understand it, but I didn't need to. The moments spent within its web of characters felt like a series of revelations, each moment carrying itself while they all built together towards a moment of emotional cataclysm. But for me now, what Anderson does in the midst of Phantom Thread's gentle restraint says more than Magnolia manages to, even with all of its ambition. It reveals a director who has found that less is perhaps more, that a camera that disappears as it slowly eases towards our characters can grab an audience even tighter than one that wows us with its intricacy, and that the quiet drama that plays out on an actor's face can sometimes mean more than a torrent of words and tears. Anderson's films are inseparable from his characters, because for him... Oh, I'm going to go really quick. while they all build together towards a moment of emotional cataclysm. But for me now, what Anderson does in the midst of Phantom Thread's gentle restraint says more than Magnolia manages to, even with all of its ambition. It reveals a director who has found that less is perhaps more, that a camera that disappears as it slowly eases towards our characters can grab an audience even tighter than one that wows us with its intricacy and that the quiet drama that plays out on an actor's face can sometimes mean more than a torrent of words and tears. 
Anderson's films are inseparable from his characters because for him they're not a vehicle he's using to carry the plot or the film's themes. They are figures out of which the film's themes and plot organically arise. And I think the best moments BK puts to film are the ones where he sits these characters down after having built up a history between them and simply lets us watch these complex, beautiful, and flawed human dynamics play out on the screen. This video is sponsored by Movie App. Alright, buddy. We get it. That's the end of the video. I put Thomas Anderson style change, and I think he summed it up best by saying less is more, and that's what every director slowly starts to figure out. And if they don't, well, they end up like, uh, am I going to throw somebody under the bus right now? I'm not, but it'd be for the better. Your camera needs to disappear. Everybody knew that back in the day. For some reason, we lost it. In my opinion. All right, we're back. I have other ones I want to look at. Like the Marty Scorsese Thomas Flight video. Um, let me see here. There's a Mindhunter video that I told y'all about that we're going to get to at some point. Let me see if I can find the title for this. The Deep Duality of Martin Scorsese. And on the screen it says Sacred and Profane. That'll be one we'll definitely look into. Um, at the beginning I'm seeing Raging Bull, so that's always a win. That's his best movie to me. Uh, but he has a lot of stuff. I don't know if we'll go to a bunch of it. Just because he, he grates me a little bit more than Movie Wise does. We got to get back to our boy Movie Wise. Not this episode, but soon. Uh, Movie-wise, obviously, we have... We can do a lot. The future of cinemas in the past. Um, let me see here. It should be in order. I don't know why it's not. Um, Woody Allen, great director. Or Woody Allen, better than you think, is the name. Well, every film today looks the same. So we still got some big ones from Movie-wise that we haven't tackled yet. Which Godfather is the best, but I want to see Godfather Part 2 before I make that distinction. Even though I have watched that video already, I do want to give that, uh, I want to watch that movie first. And I'm waiting for it to come to theaters next year, like I'm sure it will. Before we leave, and I'm going to wrap this up early, have some things to do. We'll talk about Kills of the Flower Moon. I don't know if I talked about it when I saw it a few weeks back, three and a half hours long, and I didn't have to get up to pee. Uh, shocking, because everybody on Twitter would lead you, lead you to believe that nobody can sit for three and a half hours and not have to pee. Well, seemed like most people did because nobody in my theater except like one or two people left during the movie. Anyway, I thought it was really good. Um, did my concerns come true? I mean, you can see from the trailer what they're going to focus on. You can listen to them talk retrospectively and see what they're going to focus on. They didn't want it to be about the quote-unquote white man, even though it was about the white men. They wanted to be about the minorities, even though the, they were there, obviously. You couldn't make this movie without them. But they took it away from the FBI and put it more into a love story. And I just don't think that's what that book was. But fine, it's an, ad it is, it's an ad adaptation. But I think it's made in bad faith. Which is my problem with a lot of movies today. A lot of the decisions on how they're going to tell these stories or which stories to tell or why are in bad faith instead of just, I'm interested in it. They think it's some type of crusade or some type of lesson. And I'm just not into it. But if anybody can make a lesson movie, quote unquote, feel 
very strong and powerful. Scorsese is the guy. He's a legend for the for that reason. And he did his best. Um, and I thought it was very good. Some great performances. I think Jesse Plemons gets hold. He's not in it nowhere near as much as I would have liked. And considering the movie for a long time was going to be about him and the FBI, then they took it away from him, made Leo the lead. It's a, it's a big slap in the face. Robert De Niro is doing some of his best work in a while. Leo is doing great. Lily Gladstone is decent for what she got. I don't understand her um, her getting all this buzz because I didn't see that at all. I think the ending is the best part. It moves pretty well for three and a half hours. You don't really feel the time that much, except a little bit in the middle. has a lot of distinct faces, which I like. It feels of a time. has a lot of scope and a grand scale, which I appreciate it. I think the, think the story choice to make it about their romance didn't work for me as much as I would have liked, and I would have much preferred to see a procedural about the FBI. And if they were scared that they were going to focus too much on the white man, that's impossible because the movie is about the Osage Nation. So if they were going to be there regardless and represent it, you couldn't have got around that. So I just don't understand. And it didn't matter anyway because somebody after the premiere, one of the Osage members came out and said that this movie didn't represent them well enough. So even in his attempt to make it all about them, somebody still came out and said it's not enough because a lot of this stuff, I'm going to just say this and I don't care who gets offended. A lot of this stuff is performative. It's not real. And they weren't going to like it anyway. So you should have just made the movie you wanted. And him coming out and saying, you know, I thought we were focusing too much on the white man of the story. We want to focus on the Osage. Like, well, you did. And they still are coming for you because I think since that time, another person has also came out and said something about it. And how it was just a little bit too Hollywood. And it wasn't really uh, trying to tell that story truthfully. And I'm like, well, go make the documentary. Y'all gonna make it. If you want somebody to, if you don't like how people tell your stories, go make them yourselves. Oh, wait, no, you just want to complain about somebody else making your story. And also, I know nobody would have known about this these tragic murders unless this movie existed and or, or beyond that if somebody read the book. And I'm sure a lot of people don't even know that this is based on the book. <laughs> they just said Scorsese, Leo, Robert De Niro, I'll go see it. So anyway, I couldn't remember if I gave thoughts on this. I thought it was very good. Um, the ending is the best part. It's a, it's a riveting ending that catches you off guard and you're like, wow. How poignant. Uh, and I thought he did that very well. A lot of the filmmaking stuff I loved. Um, there's a lot of big sprawling shots. And that cinema scope, especially in IMAX, is very big. And it's sprawling like an American epic that we used to get. Uh, sometimes the filmmaker let me down. Scorsese being as old as he is, I thought wish that he'd pick up more on the subtleties and the nuances that old masters have that he just never seemed to get, even though he says he's often influenced by them. It doesn't match his style. Well, he's so much of a modernist director. Uh, this is a bit more restrained than stuff like Wolf of Wall Street and stuff like that, which I appreciate it, but not as much as I would have liked. So I have faults, but overall, I thought it was very good. Is it better than Oppenheimer? No. Will it win Best Picture? I doubt it, but who knows? Lily Gladstone probably will win Best Actress because she's quote-unquote Indian or quote-unquote Native American or quote-unquote whatever. And, and you know, whatever. Uh, I haven't been watching. Uh, I haven't been keeping up with the Oscar stuff yet. For one, it's just way too early. And kind of, I kind of don't care. And if Barbie wins this year, I told my brother last night on the phone, I said, I'm done watching the Oscars because 
They've been pushing me away for a few years now, especially last year, everything everywhere winning. If Barbie wins over movies like Oppenheimer and whatever else will get in there, I just don't think we're going to have anything left to talk about in terms of that institution. I just think it'll be done, at least for me. I'm going to stop watching. But anyway, that's my little quick review of Killers of the Flower Moon. I thought it had, it was very strong, uh, certain things I didn't like, and I'm sad for Jesse Plemons because he should be, he should have got best actor billing on this, and he's not. And he was only in it for a short amount of time. And that's unfortunate because that guy, you thought this was going to be his first big breakout movie, and they took it from him because they were scared of being white guys talking about a, a story with white guys in it for some for, for some silly reason like that. But anyway, and that's just my opinions. And you know, I'm, I'm sure some if the right person hears this, they won't like it. But I, you know what, I don't care. <laughs> so that's all I got. Um, like I said, I got to get out of here. I got stuff to do, but. I want to thank you all for listening as always. Like I said, middle of the work week, keep pushing to the end. Work on your hobbies so one day your hobbies and your passions can become your life and your career. And we're constantly trying to get away from a job and get it get closer to a career. That's kind of what we want. At least that's what I'll speak for myself. That's what I want. I want to get away from the job mindset, get to a career mindset. Because a career mindset, you can make your own days. And life doesn't feel so scripted. And, uh, and televised, it, it becomes more of what you want your day to be. And that's true freedom to me. So anyway, again, thank you all for listening. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.